Vohedego con Lengori, Podcastai Rolaithisaug, Yenerum Neaug Lailduth. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And also down the road a ways is Matt Bootlier. Hi, happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we've got the um, the ancient language nerds on today. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about Coptic. Um but before we get into that, I want to remind people that the conlanging, the art of crafting tongues, I believe is the uh, correct title, that is out now. And we will link to that. You just go to conlangingfilm.com and you should be able to find it. But we will link to that. Um, William is in it. Uh, you see my face in it, but you won't get to hear me unless you listen Unless you watch the uh, bonus feature. Uh, but uh, it's very good. And uh, definitely the main feature, you should show that to friends and family if you want them to know what conlanging is. And you'll learn some things yourself, too. Yep. And my cat is in it. Yes. Briefly. Really? Badger is. Badger, you see Badger. Badger shows up more in the uh, the conlangier, yeah. the extra features that had to be cut to make a film of a reasonable time. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I think that, that also, um, the, we have mentioned that they are doing an ergative cut. That's more, um, it's going to be sort of crowdsourced and be a little bit more technical. If you want to get involved in that, you can contact Britain. Yeah, yeah. I said that it should be clear. They're not doing that. They're waiting for other people who can do things with the footage because they're they've been doing this for two years and are exhausted now. Yeah, yeah. They don't they don't want to do that, but other people who can do that stuff makes sense. All right. So go to conlangyfilm dot com and get the get the movie. Uh, yes. And uh, so with that out of the way. We are going to talk today about Coptic. Uh, Coptic is the, I guess, the most recent descendant of the ancient Egyptian language. It is, um, I suppose it's what we might call a, a zombie language, right? It's, um, it's has no native speakers, but it's still used as a liturgic, liturgical language by Coptic Christians. Yes. But it is sort of the latest development of ancient Egyptian. Unlike the previous thousands of years of ancient Egyptian, it was not written in hieroglyphics or in demotic or any hieroglyphic derived script. It was actually written in a derivative of the Greek alphabet with a few extra letters, I think. Yes, yes. Greek with a few extra letters. They say those extra letters came from... Demotic, but I don't believe that because every character in Demotic looks like different variations of three vertical strokes. Okay. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Yeah, so uh, they grabbed a few uh, characters, presumably from Demotic. Um, and Six or seven, on, I think. Six, yeah, depending on the dialect. Right. Um, and then the script also went south 
um, and was used for Old Nubian with yet two additional letters. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I'll let you guys continue, um, William or Matt, whoever else wants, who wants to sort of introduce the language a bit more. Sure. So a quick reminder, um, because this always confuses people, but Upper Egypt is in the south, Lower Egypt is in the north. Right. And think, think about how the River Nile flows, and then you'll, that will start to make more sense. Um, there are several modestly divergent dialects of Coptic. Um, Sahidic is the earliest literary dialect. That's from Upper Egypt. And that's the one you're going to find as the standard in most textbooks and is the base dialect for a lot of older literature. Um, Bahiric became the standard around the 11th century, and that's from Lower Egypt um, and is, in fact, the current language of the church. It's a little bit, in fact, more conservative in some ways, um, <clears throat> even though it doesn't conserve the global stop. And then one of the references we have for you is an old book um, that refers to a dialect called a dialect, excuse me, called Bashmuric, but these days we just call that Fayumic. And why why is the two different names there? I have no clue. Fayumic should have been the name from the get go because it's from the oasis Fayum. Fayum. So I don't, I, Fayum, <laughs> I don't understand what, where the name Bashmuric came from. And then there are other dialects of things like Achmimic and Sub Achmimic and stuff, which. Um, are represented in various kinds of literature. Uh, most of the material we have in Coptic is related somehow to Christianity um, with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi texts that includes a lot of Gnostic Christianity, both the Valentinian and Sethian varieties, and then some even Manichaeism, but that's less well represented. And in fact, probably our biggest <clears throat> no- source of reliable knowledge from actual Gnostics about Gnosticism comes from the Nag Hammadi texts. Uh, let's see here. So some question that comes up from time to time are why do languages get simpler all the time? Mm-hmm. So that's not a good, a, a well-conceived question because what they really mean is why do languages become simpler morphologically over time? And Coptic is my favorite counterexample. Right. Ancient Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, and Old Egyptian were modestly synthetic languages while Coptic is effectively polysynthetic. Okay. Uh, All sorts of crazy stuff going on. And you can trace the history through thousands of years of how auxiliary verb constructions turned into big, scary verb Mm -hmm. complexes over time. How demonstrative adjectives turned into definite articles, turned into prefixes, turned into copula. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty well documented. Uh, and, we're not going to talk a whole lot about the phonology of the language. Um, you do need to learn the Greek alphabet and a few bits, a few extras, um, but that's not right. too hard. I, um, the, it may be something about the age of the sources. There are one of the the documents I have is claiming that like every single uh, consonant can be syllabic, but I think that may no. be partly no, no, a claim no. about the script. <clears throat> no. There are the uh, B, L, M, and R. So there are five consonants that can be syllabic. Mm-hmm. We call them we call them the Blemner consonants, <laughs> um, and that is often but not always integrated by a superlinear stroke. So there's a mark above the letter when it's acting syllabically. Right. Uh, because uh, the Greek letter beta is one of those I'm inclined to suspect that it was really pronounced like a bilabial fricative of some kind. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, rather than a stop. Um, but different uh, sources give different examples for that. Yeah. Yeah. A syllabic stop would be pretty surprising. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be quite a trick. Yeah. Um, and most people just pronounce a, a short schwa when they encounter those. Mm-hmm. When they're reading the language out loud. Um, as a Afro-Asiatic language, Coptic's ancestors had lots of uh, pharyngeal and other sort of complicated uvular sounds, um, which have all gone away in the writing system. We think there are uh, traces of a glottal stop at the ends of syllables, which is written in Sahidic with um, double vowels. Oh, okay. Um, which is quite a trick and leads to complexity because they're a bit loosey-goosey with how certain vowel sounds are written. Um, um, and that's, the, the I think, the only dialect that preserves that. So a lot of those sounds have gone away. And then we have the additional letters, which basically brings in an H-like thing. But the rest of the sounds are are, are not not these sorts of sounds we expect. There are a couple of things in the writing system. And uh, we, we you do have to have an awareness of the writing system because a lot of the sources that we found give the Coptic example examples just in the Coptic alphabet. Yeah. Uh, so you do have to learn it. And there's a couple of things. Um, there's like um, a, the Tia sound. There is one that like, you can put like a stroke across the towel and make it that, right? Or mm-hmm. what is that's, it? That's a, 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 I guess, sort of a digraph that actually is the syllable T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, and... Um, the if you put the the there's an o vowel and you put uh, a letter that means like either wa or ya put those together i think some some people are saying that's like an oo sound right so the the o the omicron upsilon combination works the same way that it did in in i guess koine greek or, yeah. or oh, okay. and about so it makes the oo sound yeah and or even- um, or even edit. Yeah, so a lot of the conventions of Coptic spelling right. come from ancient Greek. And we should say that an enormous amount of vocabulary in Coptic is, in fact, just Greek. Yes. Spelled funny. Spelled funny. Especially the technical stuff, the you know theological stuff that you would expect with like these kinds of early religious texts. So a lot of it is just so technical, you know, theological words straight from Greek that don't sort of merit their own uh, neologisms in Coptic, I guess. Yeah. But but they also borrowed things like conjunctions. Right. And not just conjunctions, but funky funny funky <clears throat> conjunctions that conjunctions are like post work in weird ways. Like post positives. Yep. So yeah. depending on the register and the audience for the Coptic, it can be very, very influenced by Greek. Mm. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I would I wouldn't assume that that you know, that was true in how everyday people were speaking, that they were throwing around, you know, men and day, like right. from, from Greek necessarily, maybe, maybe some of them, but, you know, you certainly see that in the texts, but that's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the texts we're dealing with were probably translated direct from Greek anyway, so. Yes. Although we do, we do have a native literature, um, again, theological in nature, but is, is you know, we believe was written originally in Coptic. Yep. All right. So on to the grammar. Oh boy. <laughs> so 
The nouns are pretty straightforward. There are two genders in the expected Afroasiatic pattern, masculine and feminine. It's not usually obvious what's what. You just have to memorize as so usual. The- Afroasiatic, so at least in um, in Semitic, the usual way of marking feminine, with you know some exceptions, is like a T or an at oh, syllable right. at the end of a, after a root. Right, and uh, I believe that goes all the way back to Afroasiatic because in you know old and middle uh, in Egyptian in the hieroglyphic scripts, they certainly have that T at the end of most feminine words. And I think by the time Coptic comes around, it has dropped out. Right, mm-hmm. except and it in might some. Well. It might, well have, it might well have dropped out in Middle Egyptian, and it might have been a, 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 a learned writing. But it certainly existed at some point. You can, right. you can sort of predict which gender it is going to be in Coptic by the final vowel, but it's not totally consistent, is it? No. Yeah. And most nouns do not have a separate plural, but there are a few dozens that have separate forms. Um, and, and that does all of the internal vowel trickery that you expect of a member of this language family. Right. But most of the time, you just rely on the articles um, and demonstratives of which the language is incredibly fond. Um, so you've always got clues, really, uh, for gender and stuff. Yeah. Um, adjectives are basically nouns. There are several attributive constructions. Do you know to talk about, you know, the little girl? Yeah. Uh, the, the big the big dog. Um, the majority use some sort of linking morphology that looks an awful lot like the article. And then there are a, f- a small number of exceptions for what I call the Dixon specials. So big and small adjectives that mean a few adjectives that mean big and small have their own special behavior as always. Okay. okay. Yeah. And I think uh, that linking particle you were talking about, unless I'm mistaken, you can, we're not talking that much about syntax right now, but um. I think you can have noun, linking particle, adjective, or adjective, linking particle, noun, sometimes, yes. sort of, almost interchangeably. Yeah. Well, they're not interchangeable, because the one with uh, the attribute first is focusing right. um, okay. on, yeah. the, on the attribute. But yes, uh, either order is possible with a difference in nuance. Mm-hmm. We, sh- we should say, uh, we've, since we mentioned gender already, uh, it looks like the main place where that agree- the gender agrees is on the definite article. Indefinites don't mark gender right just mark number but the definite article in the singular marks the gender um right it's either um te or pe right um and they're both ne in the plural the definite article and matt you had a nice note here that um the word for king is ero and where does that come from so it comes from perro where the p was later misinterpreted as being the definite article so people were saying perro, perro, and then one generation misunderstood that as perro for the ero. Um, and er, perro, you know, original perro is, is the word pharaoh, um, which goes, goes back to this um, right. compound in, in earlier Egyptian that means like great house, but that's its own whole story. Which comes from, yeah, it comes to us through Greek, which I presume is where it gets the pho sound, right? Um, yes. Via well, via Hebrew, probably, probably. Okay. I'm just thinking of the Septuagint, but I don't actually, I don't know the the history of that word coming into English. But yeah, something like that. Greek is involved have... somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's all I'm going to say about adjectives. There are a few stative verbs, um, and I'm just not going to bother with those. Mm-hmm. Um, prepositions are fun. 
They are they are conjugated, right? When they go with personal pronouns, so we've of seen course. this before. Um, and and the, the suffixes on the prepositions are the same as a few other person sub- sus- suffixes, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, those go on verbs and also as um, is it inalienable possession too? No. So <clears throat> possession is marked with. Uh, a combination of the article plus the possessive marker plus the noun. Oh, okay. The, but there are a few weird circumstances where you get suffix things. The most likely place for you to find suffix pronouns is as the direct object of a transitive verb. Okay. Or things that they call verboids in some of the grammars, which are these stative verbs that are adjective like, you know, like to be beautiful. You know, he is beautiful. We'll use one of these suffix pronouns. Okay. All right. Um, And then another thing about these prepositions is they have one form for when they go with a noun and a different form when they have a pronoun suffix. And this business happens all over the language where what follows the word and how it would be linked in in an intonation unit um, changes the shape of the word. So this happens to verbs. This happens to certain sets of special adverbs, like also. Um, it happens to the preposition-like things that mean and. It happens to prepositions, as I'm saying here. And it happens uh, catastrophically to verb stems. Okay. <laughs> so so the, all sorts of things are going on as a result of pr- prosody. You know, things that all are squished into a single intonation unit will all be changed to, to fit. Yeah, it's um, really fascinating that, you know, that, that they had all this variation and that, you know, native speakers did this all productively. Oh, well, I mean, it's a little reminiscent of uh, last time I was on the show, we talked about the old Irish verbs, Yep, how there are sort of all these like synchronic processes going on at once and, and the speakers just know how, know how to do it, know what alterations to make. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, and then last on prepositions, there are a zillion prop, uh, compound prepositions where you have the preposition and then a noun and then another noun, you know, like on the head of for on top of and things like that. And there are many, many, many of those. Yeah. Okay. All right. Does Matt, do you want to say anything about, about other things before we leap into the terrifying edifice of the Coptic verb? Um, I don't know. I'm just looking over the notes that I have and I think maybe I can sort of introduce them as we go. Okay. All right. So the Coptic verb. A whole lot happens on the Coptic verb. And what's marvelous about the Coptic verb is we have a really great history of how all of this started and happened. So if you want the best documentation ever on how you can take a slightly synthetic language and turn it into a polysynthetic language, read Lopriano's Ancient Egyptian and Linguistic Introduction. It starts at the earliest stage of the language and goes to the end and traces how this insanity we're about to discuss develops. Mm-hmm. It's an um, incredible book. It's an incredible book, and just a great education in historical um, linguistics, I think. Yeah. So even if you're not interested necessarily in Coptic, um, he, in a friendly way, um, gives transliterations for everything, so you're not stuck having to learn a, a dozen writing systems to figure out what's going on. <laughs> uh... Okay, so... The Coptic verb, a few fundamental principles. One, there are a zillion conjugations. Many of them 
represent dependent clauses in some way. Mm-hmm. Second, they all have separate negative forms, which are rarely predictable from the positive form. <sighs> yep. So, so you have, um, I forget which form, that starts with ere in the positive and enne in the negative. Starts in share in the positive and mere in the negative. A in the positive, mpe in the negative. So you have to memorize all of those. Second, or third rather, there are several single stems um, associated with a root. In simple uh, intransitive verbs, you have infinitives and things that are called statives. Um, some books call them uh, qualitatives. Um, and then you have transitive verbs, which have three stems, depending on what follows them. If there's nothing attached to them, then you have the simple form. You have something called the prenominal, which means that a noun that is prosodically attached will follow. And prepersonal, which means that there will be one of these object suffixes we were talking about before. And there's all kinds of uh, vowel hanky-panky um, <laughs> that, that, that goes on in these. Um, and you have a few irregulars where, you know, there's just this little wisp of a vowel is all that's left of the verb stem. Right. Mm-hmm. In some forms. And I'm not even going to talk about the insanity that happens once causative constructions are involved. Oh, okay. Right. Because they get complicated. Yes. Um, So this prenominal form, like when the verb stem takes a different form if an an object noun is following, that's only used sometimes. You're just as likely to introduce the direct object noun with a special preposition. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never seen a grammar that does a good job of explaining the nuance that might come with that choice. Yeah, no, still haven't. At this point for English speakers, the best grammar is probably Leighton's Coptic grammar. It's reasonably current. But an awful lot of these old grammars are long lists of conjugation tables and a little bit about usage. Um, Leighton's a, a bit better about that, fortunately, but it can still be hard sometimes, I think, to find really brilliant documentation on this language yeah uh, and we will link to a few um older sources yeah they're 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 kind of old uh the terminology is a bit weird because they're old um and uh you know sometimes they're kind of lacking in examples but they'll get you some information right yeah they're Um, by no means useless the older stuff yeah. yeah yeah But, yeah, if you want really nuanced descriptions of what's going on syntactically, pragmatically, then forget it. Right. And I think um, Leighton's analysis of the verb clarifies things a bit. Um, In the old material, you'll see lots of talk like the first perfect, the second perfect, the first preterite, the second preterite. Um, And all of those have to do with things that act like converbs, which we'll be discussing in a moment. All right. So in addition to all of this stuff we've been talking about, um, subject, object marking, is it coming before a noun? Different kinds of prefixes indicating tense and dependency things. Um, there's a small number of adverb senses that are also prefixes on the verb. Mm-hmm. And there are eight auxiliaries that are sucked in and become part of the verb complex as well. <laughs> uh, uh, things like um, be able to, must, will, uh, but also senses like succeed in or do something frequently. All right. Okay. Sounds like a lot of uh, typical sort of modal meanings and such. Right. Yes. Uh, right. With a little a little aspect thrown in for fun. Um, so with all of this, you can get quite a complicated verb. 
some of these different verb forms do things like sequencing and aspect. You know, they, they do no more effectively than mean and. Mm-hmm. And they're used in that sort of thing. Um, uh, we've talked about how, so what will typically happen is in the verb complex is you will have some tense aspect verb form marker, like a simple pass is just ah. Um, and then you will either have the subject noun, um, which is usually prosodically separate, and then the verb, or you will have a subject pronoun, which then causes the prefix, the subject pronoun, and the verb to all glom together in one form. Mm-hmm. But all of this looks on paper like this is just a simple conjugation, but many of these constructions are still what I call open, where a combination of an actual real-life conjunction and other intervening material, then the tense aspect part, and then all of the rest, can have their own particular forms. So it's not just that you have to memorize, oh, this is, you know, perfect number two. It might mean something else with different conjugation or conjunctions. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tremendous complexity and subtlety is possible in this system. There are pages and pages in Layton's grammar of what different conjunctions plus different verb forms mean. All right. So we got this. And then we have, <laughs> to, to add to this, we have things that Layton calls conversions. They take your, your, your normal conjugated verb, which is already quite the thing, and change their function a bit. Two of them that are, or three of them, one of them does relativization. One of them is focus, and one gets called the circumstantial, which is just in a whole lot like a converb, um, and frequently follows conjunctions. Okay. So the, the fun thing, so the relative ones are used where you expect, you know, the man who is talking is standing over there, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, the focus one is what most of those second tenses are called in many descriptions. The focus forms do not identify in the morphology which part of the sentence is being focused, it merely in- announces that there is some element of the sentence that's being focused. Hmm. Now, all of these conversions are marked by additional prefixes, many of which interact in unpredictable ways with the other prefixes I was talking about before. Needless to say, your copy of 500 Coptic verbs is going to be very, very large. <laughs> Um, just because you get all of this multiple pileups at the front end of the verb complex. Okay. Um, and again, I just can't sit here and start reading all of the different things these can do. We have, uh, uh, some resources for you. I recommend you go look at those, um, just to get a feel for all of the different things going on. If you get really deep into it, then you can go get Leighton's grammar. All of Leighton's Coptic works that have come out in the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years or so, are usually pretty reasonably priced for materials of this sort. So if, if you want to get them, I recommend it. Right. Um, and then I've already talked about the verboids, which are kind of like verbs but aren't. Mm-hmm. And that's all I have to say about the craziness of the verb. Um, unless Matt would like... I mean, Matt, you actually took classes where you had to encounter these things, so... Uh, I, took, I took one class for one semester where I had to encounter these things, and we never got... Um, to really what I thought would be a satisfactory point in untangling all the verb stuff. So I, I appreciate your explanations today. Okay. So we got really super complicated verbs. 
on top of some inflection on prepositions and such. Um, Mm -hmm. So it seems like this language is, you know, uh, definitely very synthetic. And um, I like that you are sort of explaining to me that um, sort of these auxiliaries got stuck onto the verbs. And that's part of the, the, the grammaticalization process. Yes. Some of the stuff that we have is not really clear that the auxiliaries are, have become like part of the verb. Um, at least when I was skimming it. So that's, uh, an interesting thing. And that's, that's an interesting pathway to think about for grammaticalization is that we know that from previous you know, episodes here, I think we've talked about auxiliary verbs and sometimes you can have a small number of auxiliary verbs that inflect a lot more than your regular verbs do and they become the locus right. of inflection. Right. Then if those get stuck onto the regular verbs, then you've suddenly got a lot more complexity, mm-hmm. morphological complexity. Yep. Yeah, yeah, things, it's, things like ahead. conjugating internally, so to speak, if your auxiliary, you know, thing is glommed onto the front of a verb. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that's a, a good point. Is because um, because a subject noun behaves differently than a subject pronoun, we still have that process exposed a little bit more, right? Um, because we still have some kind of pref- some thing that was once a verb that has now been crushed by time. Um, and then the subject and then the, 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 the lexical part of the verb mm-hmm. and then everything else. Um, George, I'm surprised you didn't go looking at the numbers because I know you're interested in numbers. Um, I managed to find a, take a quick look. Um, I noticed that um, the, the numbers, some of them have, Separate forms. Let me see if I can find that. It's it's on it's on page seventeen of Plumley. Uh, let me. I know I passed it on one of my things. I don't remember much about the numbers. Do they do the the, the Semitic thing, the chiastic concord, and masculine goes with feminine nouns, and feminine goes with masculine nouns, or no? Or I, do they not have gender for numbers? The, they do have gender for numbers. They have okay. gender for lower numbers. They have gender for some numbers, not all of them. Okay. Uh, let me see. They do. They do not seem to have the chiastic uh, agreement. Yeah. Okay. Where, where did I actually see the numbers? Yeah. So, Plumley, page seventeen. Let me let me let me look at it and remind myself what I saw. Right. Okay. So we got for, we got simple numbers by themselves, mm-hmm. which to distinguish masculine and feminine, we have construct forms, which right. again, this is part of that prosodic collapse. Everything um, has to be prefixable with a different pre- vowel. And only That's right. One Everything. Of those um, uh, actually number four actually has masculine, feminine in the construct. A lot of the numbers don't have construct forms. A lot of them don't, and then um, most of them have separate forms when they're combined with tens units. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of those when you when you uh, get up like. Beyond 40, you don't have any um, gender differences. Yeah. Um, uh, until you get up to 300, which has and 400 <laughs> gender differences. <laughs> the, the, 
that's that's some interesting historical business going on. Oh yeah, the numbers are a bit hard to see what's going on. Um, and but a lot of it is expected is that you will you will expect if there's some sort of a a distinction marked on the numbers, the lower numbers are going to um, keep it longer than higher numbers. At least uh, they're, right. they're, yes. they're they're more likely to show that. So it makes sense that you know up to about thirty, you've got masculine and feminine, and then after that, it's spotty. And 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 then after four hundred, you never have masculine feminine. Um, uh, it looks like it has myriad system. Is that right? I see a simple root for ten thousand. So. Oh yeah 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 um, and and there's yeah there's special forms with with tens. Okay. Since I'm looking at Plumley right now, I was looking at other things. He lays out the sort of craziness that happens to verbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's look at, I don't know why this is such a favorite, loose, the meaning loose. The simple mm-hmm. absolute form of that verb is bowl. Mm-hmm. And then the form that is called the constructs here, but means that it goes before nouns, noun. is is bell. And in fact, the, the epsilon is in parentheses, so it might just become bleh. <laughs> before a pronoun, it's ball, so a short O. Um, and then the um, qualitative or the stative form is bail. Um, yeah, and, that, and those um, those like aplaut rows, so to speak, that's pretty consistent, I think. I mean, if you have an omega, a long O in the, what do you call it, you know, the endingless form, then yeah. you're going to expect like a short E in the before, when it's prefixed before a noun and a short O before a pronoun. So, so it's pretty productive. So I'm, I'm guessing that um, that... Coptic doesn't have anything like the 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 triliteral roots that you still find in Semitic languages, right? Did earlier nope. Egyptian have nope. that? I mean, you you have things that look like they're made up of three consonants, but you don't have this productive. Um, you don't <clears throat> seem to have this highly productive um, tweaking in the very earliest stages of the language. You get hints in something. It's called the stative, I think, in some grammars. It's a sort of a remnant of um, the old system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But th- that falls away very quickly. Okay. Um, and so you, you do get these changes, but they look a lot more like ablaut than the full bore triliteral root system. That in that it's just a single vowel that's being changed qualitatively or quantitatively or taken out altogether instead right. of everything being jumbled around. Yeah. Right, right. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I noticed that if, if you look in Loprieno and like when he's reconstructing the really early um, Egyptian stuff, like pre-old Egyptian, it does look, it has a very like Semitic sense to it. And, I, you know, that's the Afro-Asiatic link, but it does look the, like like a lot more Semitic-y at that point, mm-hmm. as you would expect. Okay. Uh, the I, I was just curious because I know that, um, you know, Ancient Egyptian, the phonetic component of the script did not really encode vowels, right? Correct. Correct. Um, and uh, I think, uh, Matt, you made a note that um, actually having Coptic written in the Greek alphabet gives us more information about Egyptian vowels than we would have otherwise, right? Yeah, it has helped so much in recreating the the phonological and morphological system of, you know, how the vowels would have worked in, um, like, the hieroglyphic stages of the language that we otherwise understand pretty well. 
Um, mm-hmm. We don't know what the actual words sounded like or, or where the vowels went or what, what vowels they were. And Coptic just shed so much light on that because the Greek alphabet does write vowels. Mm-hmm. Although the vowels were tortured horribly. Um, also, I mean, it, there's yes, a lot of work. It, there's a lot of work still to get from what Coptic preserves for us to what ancient Egyptian probably was, based on hints from things like names as preserved by Greek, or better yet, you know, um, Akkadian material. Mm-hmm. Right, and we're not at a point I think where Egyptologists have abandoned that sort of traditional method of reading hieroglyphic transliterations, where they just throw in like a short e everywhere. I mean, I think they still do that. It's not like we. It's not like anybody's reading hieroglyphic Egyptian out loud based on what we, based on Coptic vowels, you know? I mean, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Um, Matt, you want to talk about um, some of the, the sort of substrate effects yeah, of Coptic? I would love to. So Coptic was, you know, the, the Egyptian language, uh, at, but in the... Um, I guess the what the seventh or eighth eighth century probably uh, it started being drastically replaced by uh, by Arabic, um, but speakers borrowed a lot of their uh, aspects of their Coptic language into the Arabic that they spoke, and you can still see that in a lot of features of modern Egyptian Arabic. So, for example, a syntactic example would be um, so classical Arabic, modern standard Arabic tends to front uh, WH words like English. Mm-hmm. So if you're asking a question that involves who or what or where, the who or what or where word is the first word in the sentence. Um, not so in Egyptian Arabic, where they in Coptic they did not front the uh, that WH word, and so Egyptian Arabic doesn't do it now either. So like if you're going to ask in classical Arabic where do you live to to a, a single male person. Aina Taskunu. So Aina, where? Where do you live? But in Egyptian Arabic, it could be Intasekin Fein. So you live where? So the the where word Fein, which comes from classical Fi Aina, in like where at, um, that word takes the spot that any like locational adverb were, not and not just any WH word. So you live where? You live in Cairo. You live down the block. And so it takes it it goes like where any any uh, location goes and, and doesn't get fronted because that's not a thing that they do. Um, also, the uh, demonstrative adjectives in Egyptian Arabic follow the noun instead of instead of precede it. So, in classical Arabic, so this book would be Hav al Kitab, literally this the book Hav this al Kitab. But in Egyptian Arabic, you say il Kitab da, so the book this, and evidently that uh, comes from the the Coptic aspect. Um, and of course, as happens with any substrate situation, you get tons of Egyptian vocabulary into Egyptian Arabic, which has been like circulated into like Arabic everywhere and many other languages. So, um, <clears throat> so the Arabic word for crocodile, timsah, comes from Coptic emsah, which comes from which is like a well-attested. Uh, you know, Egyptian word for crocodile. I'm not sure where the, it picked up the T. That might be a definite article thing, like the perro, ero, yeah. even though crocodile is masculine, but I'm not sure. But anyway, um, so there are a bunch of those, giving uh, Egyptian Arabic its own kind of Coptic flavor. So that's interesting. And that sounds a lot like, you know, common substrate effects. This is, 
the kind of thing, um, when you think about substrate effects, I think the thing to always be aware of is substrate effects on a language come from uh, people who didn't speak that language learning to speak it, right? It's sort of... Um, right. It's sort of... It, it'll, it, it, it may track with second language errors, and you know that if someone who speaks a WH in situ language learns a WH movement language, they often leave the WH word in situ, right? So that's right. that's going to be a common thing to transfer. Okay, um, WH word in situ, that's the, the technical term yep. for it? Okay, thank you. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine a generation where, um, you know, like the, the 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 newly born generation is is like their native speakers of Arabic, but their parents speak Coptic and they speak some Arabic as like their second language. And so the kids, you know, even though they're native speakers of Arabic, they're picking up all of this um, like Coptic colored uh, Arabic from their parents and from older generations. And they're speaking this way with their peers. And so even though they're native Arabic speakers, they've got tons of, you know, Coptic features in their speech. And that's how. Uh, substrate languages pass things on to uh, super straight languages. Super straight. That's, <laughs> that's the word. I think sure. yeah, I've seen I, it before. I, okay. Um, you know what I mean. Yep, yep. Um, what else? Yeah, so I guess while we're on the topic, I'd like to mention this uh, book that I picked up when I was in Egypt. It's by Ahmad Abdul Hamid Yusuf. Um, it's called From Pharaoh's Lips, Ancient Egyptian Language in the Arabic of Today. It's this cool little book of, like, Copticisms, I guess, mostly vocabulary and <clears throat> sort of, like, archaic phrases uh, that survived into modern Egyptian Arabic. That said, I would give it the caveat that I've looked through it, and it's not really, like, academically rigorous, even though I believe it's published by the American University in Cairo Press. And some of the connections that they make are probably little more than wishful thinking, but a lot of them are like obviously sound. So it's just, it's just really interesting, but take it with a grain of salt. But I would, I would recommend that book if you're interested so, in this. So let's just, unless George, you have anything else to say about the language, we can transition to a quick discussion of some references. Yeah. Um, did you wait, did you go over converbs yet? Well, I mean, I've talked about them in general. So converbs, Converbs are hard. We've not have we done an episode on converbs? I don't think so. No. I think we've been you've been planning we, one. Yeah, we've talked about one. We we've talked about them before because they come up in other language. Converbs are these. Uh, so, anytime I talk about um, finiteness in verbs, I always make some listener angry. So let's just think of finiteness, a finite verb versus a non-finite verb as a finite verb is one that can indisputably at all times stand on its own. Right. I see. Um, converbs are verb forms that are less finite um, and typically do things that we associate with dependent clauses in uh, English or other Indo-European languages. So you might have, and, and in this sense, they're kind of similar structurally to the way Greek and Latin use participles, like right. yeah. having... Having gone to the store, I went home. So, so English, what's what's the I mean, what's the difference between like a converb and a participle? Like, I mean, because a participle, like especially in Greek, can convey so much information—not not person, obviously, but number and aspect. 
And so what's the difference between that and a converb? It's it's purely constructional. I think they're allied things. The the the, the main difference is that a uh, participle um, can be attributive or predicative. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Converbs yeah. are not are not used as attributives. Okay. Um, there are a, with an uh, a participle, it agrees with a noun somewhere typically, um, whereas converbs are almost always um, same subject. Interpretation okay. from from the matrix clause. The main clause, whoever the subject is, there is usually um, in Africa. You get complicated situations where you have converbs that, in fact, do mark for person. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, but they still can't be used alone. That's the big thing: is that they cannot be used alone. They have to be attached somehow to a matrix clause and relate to that matrix clause in some way, either temporarily, like you know, while talking to you, I was trying to read the book. Um, or the other example I give you know, having gone to the store, I then went home. Um, and then you get marvelous languages of the Caucasus, which have dozens of them that mean things like because and and before and after and you know the more the more and all of that, all of those possibilities. We'll we'll, um, we'll, so. we'll have to do a whole episode on converbs. I just wanted right. to so sounds like it'd be worth it. We do yeah yeah have... we we definitely will we definitely will do one. But my point is in you have all of these forms of the Coptic verb that can be used alone. But then you have this conversion, as um, Leighton calls them, that turns them into something called a circumstantial, which to me looks and smells like a kind of converb um, of a sort that is quite common in other African languages spoken not that far south. Okay, so which is why I'm which is why I'm inclined to say if we're going to say all of the marvelous things that go on in an omotic um, are converbs, then then maybe that's what's going on here as well. So fully okay. inflected, fully inflected. Um, but still dependent. Now, that would maybe, if, if those two affected each other, that would maybe be like an aerial feature, because yeah, I, yeah. because Coptic did not get this from Afro-Asiatic, presumably. Right. So, yes, it's definitely an, uh, an aerial feature where we have some um, uh, Cushitic languages and some Afro-Asiatic and some where it is we're putting Nubian these days. Yes, a bunch of different language families quite unrelated to each other um, no. due to aerial effects all have things that look like converbs. Okay. Well, um, yeah, that's definitely interesting. We'll have to, we'll have to, when we do the, the converb episode, you'll have to talk about those other languages too. Oh yeah. Um, they're, uh, I mean, yes, they're very, especially in Africa, they're pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, uh, converbs. Uh, cool. I guess we can move on to sources first. Um, we've talked about Coptic a little bit. Um, we have a note here, but I don't think we mentioned why it's called Coptic yet. Um, oh, Matt? Yeah, so Coptic, um, I don't know how that word came into English, probably through French or some. I have no idea. But anyway, it comes ultimately from uh, Arabic Kupti, which co- itself comes from uh, just the word for Egypt, Aigyptos. So it's it's just the Arabic word for Egyptian, basically. Um, uh, but borrowed from the Greeks. Borrowed from the Greek word for Egypt, which comes from this like whole thing. Um, but that is not the Coptic uh, name for itself. So the, the Coptic word for Coptic is, well, it's this Tement Remen Keme, which that's the uh, Sahidic version of it, I believe. Um, and it basically means the, like, abstract noun thing of the people of Egypt. Keme is Egypt. Right. The, there's this abstract noun prefix, which I guess it's it's sort of can derive a whole lot of things. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it's um, super productive. Um, I mean, but, yeah, but in this case, it is it is making it sort of the language. That's a, it, right. It's interesting because um, uh, we all sort of when we're doing our conlangs, like it's not like the biggest thing you do, but one thing that you do is you have to figure out what's the name of your language, and this is another. Yeah. thing is just like this it's the something related to the people of of this place right right i mean it's it's sort of like one of the standard ways of deriving it but um but then coptic itself is an exonym just from ultimately from greek <laughs> yes right right uh one thing i saw this this word for the egyptian language in coptic or for the coptic language in coptic um as another example of an interesting historical process, mm-hmm. ancient and Middle Egyptian are dominantly suffixing. All sorts of hanky-panky in Coptic is prefixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, including, including, including not just the subject conjugation, um, another wackiness that happens at the front of the verb, but a bunch of nominalizing and derivational processes happen through prefixing rather than suffixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so Keme is Egypt. Rem and came so Rem is the like, one of the construct forms of Rome, man. So Rem and came is people of Egypt. N is that little linking particle. People of Egypt meant Rem and came like the abstract thing of people of Egypt, and then to the definite article on the front to meant Rem and the abstract thing of people of Egypt, and it's it's this whole thing that means Egyptian language basically. Yeah, there, there's a whole lot of the the syllabic marker, so it might be more like. Maybe, yeah. It can be very, especially with Sahidic, because the only hint of the glottal stop is written with double vowels. But sometimes it's hard to interpret because um, a bunch of core vowel sounds are written with two vowel characters anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks to borrowing um, the Greek alphabet at a stage when everything was turning into the same sound. Um, so so it adds some complexities knowing where, where things are or you could just learn a dialect that, that doesn't write it at all um, okay so if for some reason you wanted to learn Coptic we have some free references we have Plumley, who uh, someone just took this old book and turned it into a giant PDF um, which is searchable which is nice um, kind of basic uh, but still pretty good where is the other book that I linked to? Um, right. A Compendious Grammar of the Egyptian Language as Contained in the Coptic, Sahidic, and Bashmuric Dialects. That's from the, the middle 1800s. It's still okay. And it gives, it, it, it um, writes things out a bit more and more conveniently um, than Plumley does. Right. Um, but it is, it is old. Uh, and calls things weird things. Um, but it also gives more of the dialect information, um, whereas Plumley is mostly uh, focused on um, uh, Sahidic. Um, if you actually want to learn to read Coptic, um, Lambden's Introduction to Sahidic Coptic is the best textbook available. It has lots of exercises. It has reasonable vocabulary lists at the end of each chapter. Um, it's really good to work with on your own. And it has a nice reader with notes at the end. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's pretty good. I think you still want to supplement your study with, well, I was going to say maybe explanations from Leighton. I haven't looked at Leighton too closely, but I think if you're using Lambda, you might be wanting a little bit in the department of, like, explanations of the more subtle grammatical stuff that we talked about. But, but yeah, it's great for for starting. So, Leighton, in addition to um, this grammar he's written, which is marvelous, wrote uh, 20 lessons, 20, what is it? An introduction to Coptic and 20 lessons or something like that? Yeah, something like the Coptic and 20 lessons or something. That's that's hard going. Um, it, yeah. moves, it moves pretty fast. It's pretty dense. Um, it's small um, and does not include a reader. However, he does have an entirely separate book that's just a reader of Coptic, um, which is pretty good and has a nice vocabulary in it. So... Um, you could use that. And then the crumb is still the standard dictionary if you only speak English, um, and that's available online for free because it is out of copyright. Okay. So that's all great stuff, and we will um, link link what we can and just give you give you citations Titles. of what we can. Yeah. Right? Um, and uh, for, you know, some things you might have to buy. But, uh, but I think that can sort of wrap up our show for today. It's very right. interesting. Uh, I, I learned some new things. I hope that our listeners have learned new things about Coptic. Um, uh, any final words before you go? Uh, Matt? I, can... um, I don't know. I would, I would really recommend the, the Lopriano book. Just if you're like vaguely interested in Egyptian linguistics, it's just, Ancient Egyptian, a linguistic introduction, it's, like, indispensable for this. Okay. It really is. It's a great education all by itself, um, just in historical linguistics, if you're not interested in the thing. I might suggest, they don't seem to have it, but I might suggest to the LCC or the LCS Lending Library that they get a copy of the book. It's not very expensive um, as these things go, but it seems like a useful book to have around. And like you said, like, Egyptian, I mean, so Coptic went extinct, like, totally, like, when, or, like, a couple centuries ago, 1700s. Yeah. And um, so before that, I mean, it's just been like four to 5,000 years of like history that we've got linguistic history. And so, you know, obviously there's tons of interesting stuff that can happen over 4,000 years. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's unique. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for me. Any final thoughts, William? Nope. Nothing that hasn't already been said. All right. Um, I'm going to say, finally, um, check out all the resources we're going to link to you, um, and we will also link to the Conlanging documentary. Go watch that. Go watch the special features. Go share the main feature with your family. And uh, that's uh, a great thing to to have around now. Um, And uh, with that, I'm just going to say, happy Conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our site was designed by Bianca Richards. And our theme music is by Null Device. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike license. You are free to use our show for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to Conlangery Podcast and you use a similar Creative Commons license. 
Conlangery is supported by our listeners. Please visit patreon.com slash conlangery to give your support. Thank you.